Amen. Amen. Church, let us pray before this great God together. Lord, as we think about everything that we just sung, Lord, our spirits were lifted like John to the very throne room of you. And Lord, I pray that our hearts beheld glories as we sang that song, reminding ourselves of the truth, Lord, that you are truly holy, holy, holy. And to see the scene in heaven away from the curse of this world and all the tragedies that are happening here, there's just worshipful wonder with you. Lord, that's what our hearts desire. That's what we were made for, was to worship and be with you. Lord, I pray that throughout this week and as we think about even today that you would continue to do that to our hearts and lift our minds and our spirits to fix them on the things above, not on things that are here. Lord, we wanna walk in faithfulness knowing that you who promised is faithful, you will surely do it. You will bring glory to here after you remake everything, Lord, and we are looking forward to that day, but it is not yet. Lord, now we have times of trouble and trials and difficulties and pain and frustrations and mourning. And yet, Lord, there are still glories here that we need to see. Lord, the wonder of salvation is one of the great miracles that you bring. Lord, I pray that you today would transform a soul, that you would bring a person from the domain of darkness serving themselves and the evil one and bring them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do that today? Lord, I pray also for our hearts and our minds to be fixed on you as we hear from your word. Lord, I pray that in it we would see the truth that you would have for us and that we would examine our own hearts and that we would see that we are truly in great need of you. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid of that, but that we would run to you, for you are good. And thank you for receiving us in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We've been going through Genesis. We are finally at probably one of the craziest chapters in the beginning of Genesis. One that I know I have three brothers, and so the story of Cain and Abel to me is always me thinking about which one of us was Cain and which one of us was Abel. Maybe you think that way. Maybe your parents use this analogy. I use it with my own kids. Don't be like Cain. Be more like Abel. Why do you hate your brother? So on and so forth. Maybe you've known this story. It's in many kids' Bibles. Obviously, it's not as graphic as the story actually is. Uh, but the reality is this is terrible. This is a terrible story. This is the outworking of Genesis chapter three. We just heard about the curse and man's rebellion against God and they're kicked out of the garden. We saw that last week. They're removed from the presence of God outside the garden, outside of what was perfection. And now they are in, in a sense, a wilderness outside of the garden and they are facing the consequences and as we saw, there's this reality in Genesis 3 of God saying that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this story is simply an outworking of that 
truth. And it is tragic. It is painful. It is frustrating. And the story, as we look at it, focuses a lot of attention on Cain. He's the one who speaks with God and we'll see his heart and we'll see his struggle with the reality and consequences of his sins. And in seeing this, we're going to look into a mirror of our own life. But the story is not simply about Cain. The story is also about Abel. And the Bible gives an indication of that through repetition. So seven times in this little story, before you get into the genealogy of Cain, you have Cain's name mentioned seven times. You have Abel's name mentioned seven times. You have the word brother mentioned seven times. Because the focus is it is both brothers. There's lessons we will learn from both of them. And the Bible draws our hearts into the reality of what we often face. And perhaps we're not on the side that we think we're on. So read with me Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. It says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As we start this passage, I want you to notice that in verse 1 and 25, you have Adam and Eve and them bearing children. Notice Eve speaks about Cain and says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She is exclaiming wonder. As we saw last week, Jasper mentioned the fact that God would immediately fulfill his promises, that Adam looked at Eve and said, she is now named Eve because she's the mother of the living. In other words, he took the promise of the one who would come to crush the serpent and applies it to his wife and says, she's gonna give birth to the living and that snake crusher is gonna come through her. And sure enough, the next reality that we have is she says, 
look, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's amazed that God is already fulfilling his promises to them. Perhaps this is the one, is what she's expecting. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The name Cain means gotten or received. And so she speaks about Cain in a way that is very common in the Bible that you make a reason or you give the reason why you named the kid a certain name. Interestingly enough, Abel has nothing said about him. It just simply says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. The name Abel is the word that we use in the book of, we didn't use it, Solomon used it, in Ecclesiastes for the word vanity. The word is hevel, vanity of vanities. His name means breath, vapor, vanity. Interesting, maybe that's telling us something about him. Then it says Abel is a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Now, nothing really necessarily important, but this reality sets up other stories to come. For instance, Esau is a man of the field and Jacob himself becomes a shepherd. You see shepherds being often chosen by God, strangely enough. Moses is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. It's interesting. Maybe we should all become shepherds. I'm not saying it. In the course of time, that is saying that there's a season, a time has come. Something has come about. Probably harvest and breeding season. He has a new lamb and he has some of the fruit of the ground. Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord doesn't regard one and does regard the other. Why? Why does he receive one and the other? The hardest part about this passage is there's nothing explicitly stated in the text that would say that one is better than the other. You could say, well, one, he gives the fat portions and the firstlings of his flock. Yes, that is true. But that's not necessarily the only reason that it was accepted by God because what Cain offers is actually a legitimate offering. But we know later on in the text of scripture, especially Hebrews 11, chapter four, it says this, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. So the indication here is him bringing the firstborn and the fat portions of his flock is that he is bringing his very best. It is literally a, an expression to God of his love and devotion to him. It is an expression of his faith. But the hardest part is unless the Bible would have said that, it would have been like any other offering because so many times, just like Cain, we bring an offering to God and it looks sufficient, but God doesn't look on the outside appearances. He knows the heart. And for Cain, God sees his heart and he says to him, it is not united with faith. It is not acceptable before me because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Over and over, God rebukes a sacrifice that is given and says, your heart is far from me. And then it says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord knows Cain's heart and his disappointment. 
which is anger and envy. I kind of thought of this like a, like a father coming into a room and seeing his kids, my boys share a room. I shared a room. If you have your own room, I don't know what that's like. I've never had my own room. It's just never lived that. So you know that sometimes in your room there's a responsibility of you and your brother or sibling for the chaos that ensues in your room. And imagine like a father, he comes and says to you, hey boys, clean up your room. And one of them says, okay, and goes and does everything that needs to be done and is done and it's really nice. The other one's like, oh my goodness. They go and you know that they're not really wanting to do any of this stuff. And you go in there and you inspect and you see that the bed is just a sheet thrown over chaos and you have clothes thrown into a closet and door shut and that's sufficient. And you know that like a father here, God comes to Cain and he basically says to him, Cain, I know you're angry that you had to do this and your brother was done first and he left. You didn't. Here's your heart. Here's what you need to do. You need to do it again. Do it with a right heart and then you can come out. He is like a father to Cain. He graciously goes to him and gives him a warning and an opportunity to correct what he's done. He says to him, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I love how God's warning is gracious, yet it gets right to the point. Cain assumes that he's being treated unfairly in this. Why would you accept his and not accept mine? Why would you do this? Is one of the questions. Cain is envious. We see this throughout the Bible. It's not, again, explicitly stated, but you see parallels throughout the Bible that are very similar of anger directed towards someone. Because anger in envy is that another person is receiving a benefit that you believe they shouldn't have and that you should have. Why did you accept him and not accept me? And there's anger against Abel because God did not accept him. And instead of dealing with it with God, we see that he starts dealing with it with Abel and he warns him. He says to him, listen, if you do not do well, will you not be accepted? Or if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's really saying to him, if you do well, the word for accepted is, will you not be lifted up? In other words, will not your countenance, which is down right now, be lifted up? Will it not be lifted up if you just do what I ask you? What is he asking? He says, listen, put your angry passion away from you. Put your resentment away from you. Trust me. Give to me all of you. That is what I want, Cain. I think of Psalm 84, 11. It says, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. But just like Adam and Eve, he's tempted to believe that God is withholding some good from him. You're not giving me what I really deserve. I don't deserve to be rejected by you. I deserve to be accepted by you. And God says to him, if you don't listen to me, you're gonna listen to someone else's counsel. Again, 
just like Adam and Eve. They were given God's word. If you eat of this, you will die. And they didn't listen to that, but started listening to another's counsel. And he's warning him. He says, this time, sin is crouching at the door. The picture here is an animal at rest. When we think of crouching, we think that it's ready to spring. This word crouching is actually just lying there, but if you stir it up, it will come at you. That's what he's saying. And it's at the door, meaning it's close at hand. I picture the idea of maybe a lion right outside of the door. I was in my office, and my office has a door that goes out into a hallway that's pretty dark. If there was a lion there, obviously I would probably come back into the office and close the door and maybe run out into the woods, praying that somehow the lion can't open my office door and get outside. But the idea here is not just that it's lying there waiting to pounce on you, it's that you see it and you go up and you slap the lion and make it mad. That's the idea. As sin is crouching at the door, it's desirous for you. What are you going to do, Cain? Are you going to stir that up? Because that's what he did. Think of our own hearts. How many times anger is, is fueled by thoughts. We're stirring up a lion in our hearts that is ready to pounce at the person. And the only reason it keeps going is because we keep fueling it. We keep, in a sense, slapping the line and making it mad, and then it's just overwhelming us. And we're like, I don't know why I'm this way. I don't know why I'm so angry. Well, what did you just do? You just fueled anger constantly. And that's what God is warning him. He says, it's desire is contrary to you. Now, the scary thing is we did see these same words of Eve spoken about her desire for Adam. It's not a pretty thing. It's seeking to have you and to make you its own. Now again, look at this. This is God's grace. This seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Cain, which one should you choose? Do you want to be accepted by God? He tells you exactly how to do it. Or you could be mastered by sin and go down a dark, deep dungeon. Is that what, which one do you want? All of us are like, well, that seems a no-brainer. Now it's interesting, Cain never responds to God verbally in this passage. There's no, yeah, you got a good point, God. What he does is he responds by an action, which is the next verse. It says that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There's his response. Now it's interesting that word Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Maybe you have in a footnote that says, let's go out into the field. The hard part about this passage is he spoke, potentially never said anything to him. It's never written down. What did he say to him? Some would even say that this word spoke could be translated as looked for or was seeing him, which gives more of a precedent of the fact of sin and its desire crouching to master you is that Cain then becomes sin, in a sense, incarnate in his heart and then goes after and seeks after Abel just like sin came after him. Now it's hard because we have no idea how much time passed between God speaking to him in this action. It seems relatively quick. And we have no idea, again, the relationship that potentially was there it's all speculation. We don't know if Abel and Cain were just constantly living and he just kept seething against him or if this was immediate. 
After he leaves God, he goes, yeah, that's nice, and then goes and gets them. But instead of allowing God to lift up his countenance, the text says that he lifted himself up to murder. He did not submit to God. He said, I will lift you up. And he says, no, I have my own way. And he rose up and attacked and killed his brother. As I read this, I go, where did that come from, right? When you read this, you're like, who, who does that? That's kind of sick. Correcting your brother. Imagine, my, 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 my sons, the illustration of me as a father, if I go in there and I say, son, come on, buddy, clean your room, do it right. And then he's like, Ugh. and next thing I know, I turn around and he's strangling his brother. Like that's a, what, are you, what are you doing? Like that doesn't make any sense of why you would do that. But let's be honest, sin makes sense pretty much to the people that are committing this sin. So many times we sin and we genuinely think that what we're doing is the best thing for us to do. That's how deceptive sin is. We don't make a choice to sin because we think that it's grievously evil. We actually justify it in our minds and we do it. And it's not till afterwards by God's grace and conviction that we realize that was really foolish and sinful. But in the moment, we're convinced that it's perfectly okay. That's terrifying, but that's all of us. So as I looked at this, I had to realize, Charles, that's you. You justify sin. You come to the conclusions yourself, whether out of anger or frustration or whatever it is, it leads you to have thoughts that are wrong and then actions that are clearly against God. And this all stems from Adam and Eve. They're the ones who wanted to determine what was right and wrong. They wanted to be the one who decided that one. And here it is, Cain is deciding that, just like the world does. And we're all tempted to decide what we think is best, and it's what we want to do. That's the curse. That is the curse. We want to do that which is contrary to God. And God in his grace is the one who is alone able to change our desires from ourself to that which pleases him. And the first outflow of the curse, as grievous as it is, is a family murder. And one of the things I have to say, and I know that you know this, is that the curse is always closer to us than we want it to be. And it's always gonna hurt us far more than we want it to hurt. It does, some of your families are broken. I think of the reality of this, this is so difficult. I don't even know what Adam and Eve did after this moment. It's not listed other than the fact that she then has Seth. But some of you, how are you dealing with family difficulty, strife? Maybe there's a breaking of fellowship within your family and it hurts you. And when you come together as a family, you just, there's tension there. You don't know what to do with it. And for some, the personal injuries that you have faced yourself are probably far deeper than many people know. And maybe as I'm talking about this, some of you are getting unsettled because you're like, I know what it's like to be treated unjustly. I, I hate it. I hate that this happened to Abel. And the question we have to ask is, what is God gonna do about this? 
That's how I look at it. I go, really, Cain goes in and kills Abel? Well, what's God gonna do? How's he gonna respond to this man, this murdering monster? What is he going to do? And notice that just like in chapter three, this passage is set up like Adam and Eve, the confrontation. Cain is now confronted by the judge of the earth. Notice what it says. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? I love God's questions. I love God's question. Where's Abel your brother? He doesn't go, hey, Cain, how was that anger thing that you were dealing with a, couple, a little bit ago? What, how you doing with that? He simply says, where is Abel your brother? This is very closely the same confrontation he had with Adam where he asked him, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Here he asks, where's Abel, your brother? I love it. I don't know. I, uh, no idea. Am I supposed to be watching out for my brother? A lie and an excuse. I don't know. It baffles me always that a first response before the Lord who knows all is a lie. Is a lie. I don't know. Can't, can't find him either. I guess we should go look for him, right? But really, I mean, am I supposed to be responsible for my brother? Anybody reading this, think of this. This is read by the Israelites who family solidarity was a huge deal. And it's very key for us as well. Family solidarity, you protect your own. They were broken up into tribes and they had land and they knew many of them lived with their relatives, their aunts and uncles, their cousins, their grandparents. Am I my brother's keeper? Everybody reading this would have been like, yes, you are. Of course you are. Are you serious? That's not even a question. Yes, you're supposed to care for your brother. He's your family member. Are you joking? But I think of the reality again, as I said before, some of our families, there's an intensity of animosity towards one another. I love how Solomon wrote about this. His family was a little messed up with all of the wives and concubines and how many kids he had. I imagine that was a crazy place. But he writes and he says this, it is better to have a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. If I could put it into our terms, it's better to have a stale Ritz cracker with quiet and peace than a house full of food and people are just at each other constantly. But the reality is we're called to care for our family. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, let alone your family. And the Lord asks him a question that is very similar to a question he asked Eve after he excuses this. And the question is this, what have you done? If you look back, the question he asked Eve is, what is this that you have done? Again, echoing the sin of Adam and Eve, now given to Cain. Cain, you're looking very similar like your sinful parents. And the question is really asking is, do you have any idea what you've done? Let me show you what you've done. And it says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You thought it was hidden from sight. Maybe you were very good at 
killing him and not having anybody see it. And you hid it over there. But let me tell you something. I saw it. I miss nothing that happens on this earth because your brother's blood is crying to me. And if you listen to it, Cain, it's crying out for justice. It's crying out for retribution. It's crying out to be repaid for what you have done to him. This has to be made right. Isn't it interesting that Abel says nothing during this entire episode and the only thing that speaks is his blood? The voice of his blood. He never utters a word in all of scripture, but his blood does. His blood does. And God will always hear the cry of injustice. Always. And God is the one who will bring it to judgment And he speaks to Cain, he says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This is the first time a human is cursed in the Bible. You are cursed. And it's exactly the same way that it cursed the serpent. You are cursed from the ground. The serpent was, you are cursed from the livestock. In our text, it says above the livestock. It's the same word as from and above. Same word, same line. In other words, you are the serpent's offspring. That's what you are. And so you are cursed, Cain. You are cursed. And it says the ground opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. In other words, it consumed him. And it's full now. And so he says, when you work the ground, it's not gonna yield to you its strength any longer because it's already full of your brother's blood. That's what you gave it. So now when you plant seeds, it's already full. It has no more strength to give to you, so there's nothing gonna come from the ground because you already filled it with something. Your brother's blood, no longer is it giving you its strength. And this is the same exact thing that God says to the people of Israel in Leviticus 26. He says, listen, if you disobey me, I'm gonna shut the earth up concerning you. I'm gonna give you famines, and I'm gonna drive you away from this. In fact, he says that I am going to see all of your bloodshed and your injustice and your idolatry, and the the earth is gonna be so full of it, it's gonna be sick, and it's gonna vomit you out of the land. Isn't that interesting? Because the land is a place that is God's. It's a representation of him and his dwelling. You can't be like that and be on this parchment of land. You're going to be thrown out. Thrown out. Just like Adam and Eve if you continue this way. Vomiting them out. And then he says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You will die in a wilderness without a land to call your home. Again, think of this. When the Israelites are reading this, think of their life. They were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, a garden-esque place. And he promised to be with them and he gave them a way of forgiveness and salvation and right relationship with him. He told them the way to live, the way that was right and how to be accepted. And what did they do? They rejected him They complained and grumbled and questioned and never trusted God, and so he removed his face from them. He cursed them with wilderness wandering until all of that generation died in wandering. They're reading this going, oh my goodness, that's us. That's us. Do we see it? Do we see 
like us, that after consequences are stated for our sins, that our response should be repentance, going to God? Even when they're stated here, there could be a time of repentance, but Cain doesn't choose that. Many times like us, he's trying to get out of it, just like us. He says, my punishment is too great. This is too much, Lord. I can't, I can't handle this. You've driven me from the ground, from your face I'm hidden. I'm gonna be a fugitive and a wanderer. And, and whoever finds me is gonna kill me. Now God removes none of those things except the one thing that he added. He added that people would seek revenge on him and take his life. But that's exactly what should happen to him. It's interesting that if you read Genesis chapter nine, you have the institution of capital punishment. God says that whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, because it's in the image of God that he has made mankind. But that's not yet. This is Genesis chapter four. And so Cain is speaking a reality that God would bring about in Genesis nine and even set up later on. And in the Torah, there is this person called the avenger of blood. That if someone purposefully murdered someone in your family, that your family had an avenger of blood and they would be tasked with going out and finding them and killing them. That was their task. And this person could flee to a city of refuge. And then when the avenger of blood came, he would give what happened. And if it found out that he purposefully murdered the person, then they handed him over to the avenger of blood and the wrath was removed from the land. And so the Israelites are reading this going, where's the avenger of blood? Where is he? Because Cain's right. Someone needs to go kill him. And here's the amazing thing. The Lord said to him, no, that's not true. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord puts a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Get this, God says to Cain, I will protect you. What? Not only will I protect you, but I will protect you sevenfold, meaning fully protect you. Anytime sevenfold is there, it is a full course or a full happening of the event. So if I'm protecting him, sevenfold, God is saying, is that you can trust that I will fully deal with anybody who even thinks of coming after you. And I read this and I go, what is going on? And then he puts a mark on Cain so that he would be distinguished from anybody else in the rest of the world. Now, what the mark is, it's not stated, but it distinguished him and made him different than everybody else in the rest of the world. So personally, I think it was a Detroit Lions hat. It seems like that's the only thing that would distinguish him from everybody else in the world. Now some of you, if you are Detroit Lions fans, maybe you're angry at me because I just said that. And the reality is, with Cain here, we have this truth that whether or not this is kind, is kind of in the balances here. Is it actually better that he stays alive? I know we were talking as a staff and the question that we asked was, wouldn't death be better than what he's facing right now? And maybe, but the truth of the text is, God is protecting Cain. And I think many of us should ask, why would God do this? He should die. 
But over and over again, and we'll see this later, God is gracious. He shows mercy who he wants to show mercy to. And he desires sometimes for wickedness to continue because he's got a perfectly good reason for it to continue. And he will punish evil in his time, not in our time, because so often we want immediate retribution. Get them now. And then it says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, the land of Nod is not the land of sleeping. It's a nice little, uh, whatever that place, the, it's like a shop. That's not the same thing. The land of Nod, the word Nod there is wandering. It's the land of wandering. So really, Cain is becoming a wandering wanderer in the land of wandering. That's what he is. And you go, boy, God really doesn't want him to settle down anywhere. But notice the direction again, and Jasper brought this out to us, is that it's east of Eden. So if Adam and Eve are east of Eden, he's even east of east of Eden. And so he's further removed from God. Further removed. That's a terrifying place to be. And that's the end of the passage today, but now we have to look at what do we do with this? And there's two things I want us to do with this. First of all, I challenge us to make it our aim to please God. First, make it our aim to please God. The differences between these two is that God is not blind to see what is in our hearts. I don't know where your heart is today. I don't know what it's like for you to worship throughout the week and then to come here. Maybe you're satisfied in the things that you do here and you go, okay, God, I saw you on Sunday. I'll see you next Sunday. I don't know what your heart is. Again, the hardest part is that we can only see the outward, but God, make no mistake, God never misses what is happening in your heart. Not one time. Every single time you and I want to profess that we love and follow Jesus, the question that we would have to ask is, is that true? Do I love and follow Jesus? What is the evidence of my faith? That's the thing that we see also with Cain and Abel. Abel offering best the things that are acceptable to God with joy. Faith expresses itself in action. But the hard part is, is that false belief can also express itself in action. Jesus rebukes, again, the Pharisees and others and says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God knows the difference. He knows those who are his. And I have to say, some of us might think we're getting away with not being a follower of Christ and we're, we're hiding how much we actually love sin. And we're just here because we have to be. And perhaps some of you think you're fooling your parents or your spouse or family members or friends. But truly, you have no delight in God. When, when we talk of God, it's kind of like a smile and a nod, but it's not a heart affection for Jesus. And I think of every single time you're exposed in a little bit, you kind of hide and you dismiss it, and you might even get angry at the people who are exposing it because that's going to be exposed because you're around children of light being darkness. You can't expect any other outcome. You will be exposed for who you are and maybe you don't want to and so you're getting rid of people left and right out of your life because you don't like God's word being so clearly piercing through to you. Let me say this, God gives us a warning 
He tells us in James chapter four, submit yourself to me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Don't laugh about things that are so fleeting. Turn and mourn. See your sin and weep before me and humble yourself before me. And just like I promised to Cain, he says, I will lift you up, I will exalt you. Don't be like Cain. The only way to please God is to admit that you are a helpless sinner in need of a great king and savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who alone will bring you to God and he wants to. So those of us who make it our aim to please him, repent when you sin. Be thankful for the many blessings that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask God to make your love and affection grow towards him. Ask for greater faith as you hear and understand the word and to do it. The second thing is, as there's another strand I wanna follow that is more deceiving. It, it, this one looks like Abel, but it smells like Cain. It looks like Abel, but it smells like Cain. It's this, avoid unrighteous anger toward evil. Avoid unrighteous anger towards evil. Everything that Cain does, again, makes you hate Cain. You don't like Cain. No one wants to be Cain. I'll be Cain. No, no one says that. Everybody thinks and wants to be like Abel because this guy deserves everything that comes to him. And again, we're looking at it and saying, I, I want him to have more. So when we are hurt and perhaps even wrongly or poorly or abusively treated, where does your heart go? Where does your heart go when you face an injustice like Abel from a Cain because there's still constant injustice in this world and it's all over the Bible and all of us have been wronged by someone all of us have been hurt by someone perhaps even in this room if they're not in this room they're in your past and maybe they've never apologized. Maybe they've never even admitted that it was wrong. Maybe you've tried to talk to them and they've ignored you and removed themselves from you and it's only increasing frustration to you. Because you see, God, nothing is done to make this right. Why would I ever treat that person any differently? They're against me, I am against them. That is a dangerous place for a believer in God to go to in our minds. Very dangerous. So quickly offended, so easily angered. Immediate retribution from our hands. Let's be honest, our nation loves vengeful mobs. Love them. God spoke what he did to Cain in judgment, would you and I say, okay, God took care of it, that's enough. In our zeal for Abel, sometimes we're acting like Cain. I could imagine that people were not happy with God's judgment and they stood out and posted maybe picket signs that said, justice for Abel, justice for Abel, because they want Cain to die immediately. God spoke what he did, that settled it. And he even graciously said, I will be his protector. Can I share a story with you? 
It's in the Bible. Thank you. But it's in the Bible. It's the story of Jonah. Maybe you haven't seen Jonah in this light, but let me show you that Jonah is Cain in the Bible. Jonah is Cain. As we start off, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and it says, go to Nineveh and preach against it. And he goes, that's a great idea. And he goes the opposite direction away from the presence of the Lord. That's exactly where Cain went at the end of the story, away from the presence of the Lord. It says it three times in the first chapter. He goes away from the presence of the Lord. In fact, he rose up to go away from the presence of the Lord. And this is what they say, the sailors, right? He's in the ship, storm is coming, all of this is happening, cast lots, Jonah, it's you. He goes, who are you? I'm a Hebrew, I worship the God of heaven and earth and I fear him, I really don't, but I fear him. And they look at him and what do they say to him? What have you done? Same words that are spoken to Cain. What have you done? They knew that they have now fleed from the presence of the Lord. So now he's thrown over, he's swallowed, spat out, vomited, bleh, out into Nineveh. He goes and preaches against it. And guess what? Guys, the whole city repents, amen. These people are repenting and it says that God then saw what they did and he, they turned from their evil way and God relented of the disaster he would do to them and he did not do that, amen. Yes, and Jonah hates it. Jonah, it says, becomes exceedingly angry, very angry. It displeased him. He was seething. And this is what he says. He says to the Lord, God, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I left. I went to Tarshish away from this because I knew, I knew that you were gracious, God. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from the disaster. Why are you like that, God? Take my life. Take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. This is what he's saying. God, if that's the way that you're going to treat wicked people, I would rather die and not be in this world. That is not what I think is justice, God. How dare you save them? That is the heart of Cain. That is the heart of Cain. And he says to him exactly the same thing almost. Why are you angry? Do you do well to be angry? Why are you so angry? Jonah is Cain. He has no desire for his enemies to have grace given to them. And yet that is the very character of the God that he is speaking for. And he doesn't even know him. No, he knows him. He hates what he knows about him. And his whole argument is based on the fact that they deserve something and therefore I wanna see them get it. And God says, I am a gracious God. I will forgive. And today, listen, blood still cries out for justice and atrocities are gonna to continue to happen. In fact, Hebrews 11:4 says that the blood of Abel still speaks Today, there's still things that you will face that are unjust, that are not right. In Revelation 6, the people under the altar are asking God, how long is it gonna be until you avenge our blood? Do you not see this? And God tells them, wait, there's still more injustices that must happen. There's still more that are gonna die for my name. This is why Hebrews 12, though, tells us to look to Jesus. Because Jesus is both 
Cain and Abel. What are you talking about? Both Cain and Abel. Jesus is innocent. His brothers were envious of him. In fact, the Pharisees are stated as lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say, like sin. Their bloodlust before Pilate that they would cry out, crucify him and say, let his blood be on us and on our children. And he makes no answer to this. He's silent during his accusations. That's how he is like Abel. But he's also like Cain. You are cursed, Cain. Jesus becomes a curse for us. From your face, Cain, I shall be hidden. Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Why have you hidden yourself from me? Cain is kicked out from his people east. Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. He took the punishments of Cain for us. That's exactly what the Bible is indicating is that Jesus is able for you. But he also took the punishments of Cain from you so that you and I in trusting Jesus are no longer like Cain, but you guys are actually made like Abel. That's incredible. And the word of Hebrews 12 says you have come to God. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and listen to this, and to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because Abel's blood speaks retribution. Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. It's a better word than the blood of Abel. So if you and I, our hearts are focused on Abel and all of the injustices, remember, there's a better word that is spoken by the blood of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And let's be reminded, all of us have been spared of the justice and the wrath of God upon us as sinners if we have our faith in Jesus Christ. And that should be our desire from the day we are saved to the day we die, that people know Jesus Christ. That's what we want And that is why we avoid unrighteous anger towards evil. That's why we make it our aim to please him and leave God, the righteous judge of all the earth, to do what he will. Lord, use us how you will. Let's pray. Lord God, our hearts are so easily given into the things, Lord, that we want to see happen, Lord. And it's not wrong for us to desire justice and righteousness to reign on this earth. And you've put it in our hearts because we're created in your image. And Lord, you've shown us Jesus. And we know that as Peter says, Lord, that there is a day that is coming where wrath will come, but you are not slow in keeping your promises, Lord. And we want to think that you're slow, but you are slow knowing that your desire is that all should find repentance and never find perishing away from you. God, that's not, that's not my heart. Lord, many days I, I'd love to see, I delight to see my enemies suffering. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I want to have a heart that's like Jesus. I want to remember that when I see injustices in the world, Lord, that your blood speaks a better word. And Lord, I don't want to be like Cain. I don't want to have this fake religion that somehow worships you with my mouth, but my heart is far from you. Lord, I ask that you would Make our hearts, take our hearts, Lord, as the, as the hymn says, Lord, it's prone to wander. 
It's prone to leave you. Lord, take my heart and seal it for you, for your courts above. Lord, we want to know your glory. We want to know your character, and we want to enjoy you and love you because of who you are, not like Jonah. Father, there's so much that we need, and yet everything that we need is given to us in Jesus. You are sufficient, Lord, and we love you. Amen. Praise God. A lot to consider, a lot to let roll around in our hearts. I trust that's happening for you right now. We love to respond to God's word in song because it gives us a voice, gives us an opportunity to add our amen to those things that we've heard. So would you stand up together? Don't miss these last few moments before we leave this place to thank God for his mercy. It's rich, powerful, changes everything in our lives.
Mercy is one of my favorite words. I think of a moment when I was younger, I was a master provoker of my younger brother. We're in the hallway in our house and I provoke him and he dives into me and my mom comes back and she smacked me in the back and she smacked Trent in the back and she said, when are you two gonna stop fighting? I was 23 years old. <laughs> yeah. And I heard the Lord say, Todd, what are you doing? And in the moment I was watching my mom cry because her kids are fighting. 23 years. Mercy. The Lord mercifully said to me, Todd, what are you doing? And he brought me to a place of repentance. Look, if you're, if you're here today and you're like, man, I have... I have never experienced the mercy of Jesus. There's no such thing. I want you to know, based on today's message, you are experiencing the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he lets you live. Now we're inviting you, he is inviting you, receive his mercy and come into relationship with him and let him take care of everything that would torment you. Keep your ears open, church. The Lord continues to ask, what are you doing? If you have anything you want to talk about, we stand ready to walk this through with you. We will work with you to find answers for um, all of your questions. There will be people standing down here ready to talk to you, pray with you, 
don't leave without knowing the full mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know this, you are loved, and we'll see you next week.